Let's pray for the preaching of the Word this morning. Lord God, we know that if you do not give us eyes to see, we will not see. If you do not give us soft hearts, they will remain as hard as stone. If you do not give life, we will die. So Lord, we ask that through the preaching of your Word, you would do all of that. That your Spirit, He would be here, He would be active, and that He would transform us into your image. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Why don't Christians read their Bibles more than they do? Today's passage is really about when the Word of God is dwelling richly, individually, and corporately. And asking that question, why don't Christians read their Bible more, it's, it's really a constant lament um, from pastors as they ask themselves the question, well, how do I get my people to read the Bible more? How do I get them Uh, to pray more. Why are these things so uninteresting to them? And what are some practical steps I could take to change this? And if I were to poll you guys, a lot of you would probably agree and say, I wish I read my Bible more. I wish I was more disciplined in prayer and scripture reading. And thus a nagging guilt can, can sit in and we can wallow in our shortcomings. We know we should do it more often, but life is very full. I mean, there's so much to be distracted by. Things like TV and, and social media and the 24-hour news cycle. There's so much stuff just happening all the time, pulling at our attention. And yet, I think we should probably rephrase the question. I think the problem we need to ask is this. Do we emphasize Bible reading and prayer too much? Yeah, I got deer in the headlights look from some of you. I realize that by asking that question, I'm I'm opening a giant can of worms. And I want to say this clearly, reading your Bible and prayer are the very lifeblood of the Christian life. You cannot grow in the faith without those things. And yet, I feel that we, or I think that we often reduce the Christian life to being a good Christian is really just the spiritual disciplines. What makes me a good Christian? Well, I read my Bible every day. And in that, Uh, those things, those disciplines, become the end goal in and of themselves. In other words, they're a cul-de-sac that you drive into and then you just stop there. And it's not really all that appealing. We read our Bibles simply to read our Bibles. We pray because we are supposed to pray. And it becomes a circular process with no vision and no purpose. In general, American Christianity has bought into the lie of secularism. And at its heart, secularism teaches that Christianity and the faith in general is, and faith in general are meant to be private realities. They are primarily a private experience that you have as an individual. And so it's okay that you have the Christian faith as long as you never talk about it, as long as it never enters into the public realm of life. And there, as I said earlier, in the public realm of life, human reason and science reign supreme. Can't you tell how reasonable we are as we rely on science today? No, not really at all. Christians have been quick, though, to retreat into that secular cage. We have many names for it, many identifiers for this idea of just keeping your faith primarily about private disciplines. Pietism, as Francis Schaeffer called it. Piety is being holy. Holy is a good thing. The Christian life is never less than personal holiness. But it's more. Pietism reduces the Christian life to only, or even mostly, private experiences disciplines, and private holiness. And there it can fit really well in a relativistic world. 
That's just my truth for me. This often goes hand in hand with a soft form of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the oldest heresy in the Christian church, a denial of the physical world. The physical world doesn't really matter all that much. And so Christianity becomes another therapeutic worldview made to make us feel better as in a way to escape the hardships of this life. It's not that undifferent than many fantasy novels and video games where people go to conferences and dress up like their favorite character. And well, individuals will spend their lives doing such things. It really doesn't have much of an impact on their everyday life. And I fear that we have come to teach the Bible in the same way. It's primarily there for my internal, private comfort. And pastors will then complain again and again about the apparent separation between Sunday morning and the rest of the week in their people's lives. Well, pastor, that's because you're the only one spending every day of the week in your study, studying the Bible. The rest of them go out into the world and they live their lives. If we largely train our people to handle the Bible like it only truly matters on Sundays and in their private prayer closet, then it is true that the Bible has become absolutely irrelevant to most of their life and is therefore not that very appealing to read and study because it doesn't matter except on Sunday. And that is how I think we overemphasize Bible reading and prayer. We limit it to a private experience and therefore we actually underemphasize it because it doesn't impact most of life. And Paul gives us the exact opposite here this morning. He lays out what it looks like when the Word of God dwells richly in our lives, in our homes, our communities, and even, yes, in our nations. There are certainly internal benefits, personal holiness, personal spiritual disciplines are a must, but it's meant to impact everything else. And these are, these verses here, or the pivot verses where Paul moves from a section where he's been primarily talking about personal holiness. He says, you need to put off your old way of living. You need to put on this new way of living. And then after this week, he is going to shift and he's going to talk about, well, what does this mean for my relationships with my family? What does this mean for my relationships with my boss? Or in the, that century, my owner. He's going to shift from private experiences to, well, the rest of life. Or to summarize, put it right on the nose for you, all of Christ for all of life. So he's, here he really is continuing that put on section of the Christian life to transition us to what that then means for the rest of life. Look again at verse 15. He speaks of peace. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. The stress here is the peace of Christ. And if you look down at the next verse, this is established because of the word of Christ. So Paul wants you to know that all of the virtues he's listed above, all the things that you're supposed to be putting on, are absolutely nothing and absolutely impossible without Christ. The fruit comes from him and from his work and his work alone. Those virtues are virtues because of him. All of this is to say is that this way of life that Paul has been describing the new way to be human, the way to change, it all comes through recognizing who Jesus Christ really is. And that's what the first couple chapters of this book were all about. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's the one who created everything. He's the one who will inherit everything. He's the one who holds all things together. And he's the one who died for everything. That Christ impacts everything. 
And the change starts by noting that Jesus Christ is your boss and that you aren't. The peace of Christ here points directly back to Colossians 1.20. Paul writes, And through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When Paul says that our lives should be ruled by the peace of Christ, he's pointing directly back to the peace of Christ that he has already established by the blood of his cross. In other words, it's an objective reality. It's not like you need to become some Buddhist monk who's all Zen or whatever. It's that Christ's peace has already invaded this world. Christ's peace is already an objective reality. His his blood brought that peace. And that is meant to rule over our lives, our thinking, our feeling, and the decisions that we make. That Christ and his kingdom of peace are reconciling the whole universe by the blood of his cross. And that, therefore, should inform how we live. This peace is not, and we must hear this, is not the absence of conflict. Peace in the Bible terminology is not the absence of conflict. For Christ has promised that we will be in conflict and we will, in, we will experience suffering and trials in our everyday life. But rather, as we experience those things, this bedrock belief and surety that Christ wins gives us peace. So Paul moves from Colossians 1.20. He says this peace that Christ has established by his blood. He then moves into all of these conflicts that they're having in the church of Colossae. And he says to them that the evildoers are or have been put on notice. That they will either repent and be forgiven or they will be judged. That Satan and his allies will be wholly and totally defeated. Because they have in principle been defeated at the cross. The call to let the peace of Christ rule over your life is not a call to wishful thinking. It's not a vague hope that someday, somehow, everything will just get better. But it's the assertion that Christ is the risen Lord whose blood has changed everything. That he has won and is in the process of winning. Winston Churchill took over the leadership of Great Britain uh, during some of the darkest days of World War II. In the common sense, and everybody's in the, well, the political class, pretty much thought England at that point stood no chance. And yet, uh, Churchill was brought into power and he was asked the question, what is your strategy? So you're the new prime minister. We don't really have any troops. They're all stuck in France. What are we going to do, Winston? What's the strategy? And he would often give a one-word answer. Victory. We win, they lose. The goal is victory. And we live in a time in which it appears that there's an unyielding evil and darkness, and we can wonder, is there any hope? And what's the plan? And in fact, there's many a Christian leader out there who will say, you know what, the fact that we're getting beat so bad is actually good for us. That's the strategy. Let's just get beat worse. The strategy is victory. Victory in Christ, for His cross has secured it. I have this quote hanging up in my office at home from Winston Churchill a gift uh, this last Christmas from my sister. She knows me well. 
He said, never give in. Never, never, never. And nothing great or small, large or petty. Never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. He's saying these words to a bunch of young men while Hitler's knocking at the door. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Do not let us speak of darker days. Let us speak rather of sterner days. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest days our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our stations, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. I'll read to you this quote for one very simple reason. If Churchill, in the face of all of this sure defeat, can be that brave, that sure of victory, in the face of Hitler, how can we not be more? We have been trained for far too long to think that all is hopeless and to ignore the realities of the cross. When the peace of Christ reigns over our lives, we realize that he is the risen Lord and that his blood is making all things new. And Paul makes this claim of the peace of Christ, I think, rather tongue-in-cheek because it's made in the context of the Roman government that day that was declaring the pox of, of Romana, the peace of Rome. The peace of Rome is transforming the world. And not too long, Rome would fall, crumble from within and without. Their peace was brought about by a sword and it accomplished nothing. The peace of Christ reigns even greater and even helped in overthrowing the fake peace of Rome. The next things that mark what a life looks like when the word dwells richly are that of thankfulness and worship. Look at the end of verse 15 and then verse 16. Paul writes, And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word is meant to bring thankfulness in our hearts and to move us to worship. Indeed, our worship should be infused with and based upon and directed by the Word of God. If our worship is not deeply rooted in the truths of Scripture, in the truths of who God is and what He has done, then our worship is utterly pathetic. I don't care what your style is. I don't know how many lights you have flashing or fog machines you have. If it's not rooted in the truth of God, then it is utterly repellent to God as worship. And that is something we must hear. Style could go one way or the other as far as I care. You can have lights on, you can have them off, I don't care. It needs to be rooted in the truths of Scripture. There are two truths we must dive into deeper here. This idea of thankfulness and worship. Part of the answer that these two are stressed here is that through the Word of God, He transforms His people. Why are we to be thankful? We can be thankful, first of all, Because God has spoken in His Word. It is not enough for the Christian life or the Christian faith or the Christian worldview to believe that there is a God. There are many people who believe in some vague idea of a God out there. Many theists. They believe God exists, but they think that that God needs to be discovered by our wisdom, our experiences. We are left as blind and dumb to who God is. 
Without a word from God, we really are like that old parable of the six blind men who are examining the elephant. If you haven't heard it, it's generally used to, to reveal what all of the world religions are supposedly like. You see, you have these six blind men and they're all feeling this elephant. One's feeling the trunk and he says, well, the elephant's actually a rope. One's feeling the tusk. He says, well, the elephant's actually a spear. One's leaning against the, the giant side of the elephant and says, well, this is actually a wall. That's what it is. And, the, and it's supposed to show that human and human our world religions, they are all blind and they don't really know who God is. They just emphasize different parts of the God who is there. Now, if you stop and think about this parable for, for any amount of time, you realize that there are several very glaring problems with it. First, all of those blind men are wrong. Right? It's, it's not a rope, it's not a spear, it's not a wall, it's an elephant. They're all utterly wrong. Second, the person telling the story assumes the true position, telling you, well, it's actually an elephant. So somehow that person telling you the story has access to the true uh, reality of what is going on. And third, Christianity doesn't really align with this parable because we agree, in one sense, that it would be true of all religions that we were all blind if, but for one thing, Christianity says the elephant has spoken. And the elephant says, I'm an elephant. Listen to me. It's not enough to believe that there is a God, but this God also must reveal himself. He must speak. Christianity is a religion based on revelation, or again, as Francis Schaeffer has said, he is there and he is not silent. God is not only there, he not only created everything, but he speaks so that you might know him. Therefore, you should be thankful that you're not a blind man examining an elephant. You should be thankful that God has spoken so that you are not left in the dark. You can know who God is because he has spoken and because he has saw fit to have it written down and preserved from generation to generation. If you don't know the long, bloody history of your Bible and how it got into your hands and so easily accessible, then you should take some time after the service today and to read about it. From Moses to it being transferred to Israel, to the books of the Bible surviving invasion after evasion from the Assyrians to the Philistines to the Babylonians. The books escaped in secret again and again. They were preserved in the temple and even forgotten about by the people of God until they were discovered generations ago or generations later. They were also preserved in caves like that in Qumran where the word of God was stowed away so that future generations might have it. For centuries after Christ, they was passed around in secret, carried around by messengers to the first century churches, where they risked body and limbs so that the churches might have the very words of God. Then even as Christianity took root in the West, it became illegal to translate the Bible into the common tongue. Only the priests, only the pastors could have access to it. The common people couldn't be trusted with the word of God until the Reformation. And men died. And they were burned at the stake so that you might have the word of God in your own tongue with countless English translations that you can now choose from. Men and women who defied kings, popes, and tyrants so that God's word might go forward. And through their blood-stained and charred hands, God has preserved his word so that you and I might have it. And still today, there are many who defy governments so that more people might have God's word. 
So be thankful that not only God has spoken, but be thankful that he has given it to you through the centuries, that you might have his word. Second, the word drives us to worship God. Paul says that we should be singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that there is a diversity of songs that the church sings. But these are all to put us directly, to be, or point us directly to be thankful to God. The point of worship music is not to have a warm, fuzzy experience. It's not self-fulfillment. It's not self-actualization. It's not to have chills run down your spine. Worship is meant to point us to God. To put it another way, all songs teach. Every song, every story, they declare something about the world. They offer a vision of what is good, what is beautiful, and what is true. Music is not neutral. And where the word of God is lacking, the worship is lacking as well. Put it another way, you can tell a lot about what a church believes and practices by what goes up, what goes on on stage before the message. Where God's word is not preached faithfully, boldly, and exegetically, you will find very, very weak worship. You will find a concert where very few of the congregation sing and we just have a performance going on. Worship becomes man-centered instead of God-centered. The music we sing here is meant to worship God for who He is and what He has done in Christ. When we were launching this church, we, we wrote an essentials document as elders. And we have a, song, or a section there on worship. I think we can credit uh, Phil Norris for this. I'll read it to you though. All songs teach. The only question is whether they teach truth or error. Songs must direct us outwardly towards God as they instruct us inwardly and as they truthfully express the worth of Christ. Music is essential in that it conveys truth and beauty. Therefore, churches should utilize God-glorifying content with excellence and quality of music, displaying beauty and skill in its delivery. If the music is not pointing us to God, then it's not a worship service anymore. If the, words, if the music is not teaching us truth about God, then what is it teaching us? I don't think it's too much to say that, that even though you can fill 15 campuses full of people with a concert and a little pep talk from a guy who calls himself a pastor, it is our need for entertainment that is slowly poisoning and killing the American church. We could draw in a whole lot of people if we were a whole lot more hip. And I'm never going to be hip. So. But that sells because that's what people want. But the church's job is not to give you what you want, but to give you what God has said to give you. And so even though you can fill campus upon campus with such activities, it does not equip the next generation for the faith. It does not teach them about God, and so they will die. We've seen it again and again in church history. If we do not point people to truth in God, the church dies in a few generations. When God's word is present, when it dwells in a people, we avoid two things. We avoid the dead formalism of man-made religion, because you can have the form of our worship and still be lacking and be dead. You need to hear that. And we also avoid the dead entertainment that seeks to please man instead of God. 
when the Word dwells richly in our minds and in our hearts, in our churches, we sing praises to our God. The people sing. The stage doesn't. The people sing out to what God, or to what, for what God has done in Christ. You can tell if the Word dwells richly by what is happening during the worship part of the service. As a revelation-based religion and not an experience-based one, the truth for Christians is of primary importance. Truth is what we seek, and we seek it from the mouth of God. But believing in truth and revelation means that you and I also need humility. Humility to seek the truth, humility to speak it. That's the other part of verse 16 you can't miss. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom is the call of the church. We are a place where we teach, where we admonish. That is a fancy word for correct one another. And we are called to do so with all wisdom. Again, Paul has already told us in this letter where all wisdom is located. In Colossians 2, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And hidden here does not mean that you need to somehow discover it, but it means that it's stored in Christ. All wisdom and knowledge are stored in Christ. And you and I are to use Scripture to teach and correct one another in all wisdom and knowledge. Christ is the embodiment of truth, of life, of wisdom, of knowledge, and He is God in the flesh. And so when His Word dwells richly, when it takes root, you and I long for truth. For Christ is the truth. We feast upon it because it grants us life, light, direction, a foundation, meaning, and purpose. And this is where it gets kind of countercultural. When we talk about teaching and correcting and truth, this means that there is a standard and that you and I are called to live according to that standard. That means we are to conform how we think, how we feel, according to what God has said. To put it the other way, you are not your own standard. You are not your own source of truth or meaning because you are not God. We need to be teachable from the pastor and the elders on down. We need to know that we are limited, that we don't know everything. We need to know that we are sinners and that we have weaknesses and even blind spots. Every follower of Christ, as he or she seeks the truth, must weigh corrections that are offered to them. They must weigh rebukes carefully and prayerfully and with their Bibles open. The sign of a mature Christian is not the man or the woman who has every answer right. It is not the know-it-all. It's not the one who will never admit that he's wrong. The sign of a mature Christian is to be one who deeply thinks about his own needs of repentance and faith and has a teachable spirit. One of the things I've, I've found in uh, almost 10 years of ministry now is that a teachable spirit is often rare in tough circumstances, but man, it is a light of God when you see it. You can see God working when people are teachable. Every follower of Christ, as he seeks the truth, must have a teachable spirit. There are few things more destructive to our lives than being self-righteous, arrogant, using the Bible to always shield and justify our own shortcomings and being unwilling 
to be corrected. Right. We all admit that in general. Oh, yeah, I get things wrong sometimes, and yeah, I, I do need to be corrected sometimes, but the rubber hits the road when you've actually stepped out of line and someone comes up to you and says, hey, Levi, do you th- I think you were wrong here. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not wrong. You're wrong. That's where the rubber meets the road. And that doesn't mean every time someone comes to correct you that they're right and you're wrong. You have to weigh it carefully in prayer with your Bible open. As the people of the truth, we must teach and be teachable. This is where the whole preaching thing gets, gets rather odd and presumptuous. I claim no authority inherent to myself over your life. I claim no special insight. I'm not a guru. I don't know the best way that you should live your life. I'm not an expert. And if I were to stand up here Sunday after Sunday telling you how you should live, how you should think, how you should feel, based upon me and my wisdom and my credentials, then I would be one of the most arrogant men to have ever walked this earth. And there are lots of men who do just that. And I fear that many churches come to view their pastors that way. And that many pastors, as they neglected the word and preach anything but the word, live that way. I am not the source of truth. I am not the judge. And I am not God. But it is my job to preach to you the very words of God. The authority of preaching and teaching in the church is not found in the teacher or the preacher but in God and His Word. If I'm doing my job well, you hear from God when I preach, not from me. And that doesn't make me special that you're hearing from God, but it comes from the Word of God preached and applied as the Spirit brings it to you. And so we must all strive to hear from God and to receive His instruction and His corrections. Do not train your heart that every time you feel that conviction on a Sunday or a Wednesday or whenever it hits you that you just explain it away or delay, delay, delay. When you train your heart to go that way, you will go that way. But when you feel the Spirit bringing conviction, don't throw up your defenses. Repent and believe. Experience the grace of God again. Paul has one final thing to say as he wraps up this section and transitions us to the next. Again, I said these these verses are like a doorway flowing naturally from one thought to the next. Look at verse 17. It says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. Do everything in the name of Jesus. The Lord Jesus. Everything. Not some things. To declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to declare that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he is the preeminent one, means that we should do everything differently. It's very easy to say on the one hand that Jesus Christ is the Lord of everything, but it's very difficult on the other hand to live that way. As I've said to you before, it's very easy for me when I'm talking to fellow preachers To get them to say that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. That means he's the king over kings and he's the Lord over lords. It's very easy for me to get them to say that because it's in the Bible. It's very difficult for me to then tell them that they should actually preach like that means something today. That Jesus has authority over kings and lords. Yes, even right now. That to live like the word is true is to live as if Christ is the Lord over everything, which he is. Paul is transitioning here to talk about the lordship of Christ and what that means for family life, in the arena of work, and in the arena of being a bond servant. 
In other words, Paul has built this expansive, all-encompassing picture of Christ, the one who made everything, the one who holds everything together, the one who died for everything, that Christ. Now you should live as if that is true throughout all of life. Because it is true. If Christ is the Lord over anything at all, he must be the Lord over absolutely everything. That brings us back to where we started. When we turn Bible reading and prayer into end goals, when we lock them into their secular cage of a private experience in holiness, then we make it truly irrelevant to life. When Paul says the word dwells richly, when it dwells richly, what should you be doing? Well, you should be doing all of Christ for all of life. When you're really understanding what Scripture says, then you are recognizing the Lordship of Christ throughout all of life. Paul is clear. Whatever you do, wherever you do it, recognize that Christ is Lord. The Bible is meant to dwell richly in us and to guide us into all of life, declaring all of Christ. You need Scripture because God has spoken giving you his truth over all of life. Put it another way, God's word is the foundation and the guiding principle for everything that happens. Pastors who want their people to read scripture more need to show how it informs all of life. They need to show how it gives you an utter worldview of everything. How Christ is, as Ardell talked about with the launching of the new website, Lord over all. That he will inherit it all. That this world is his. To put it another way, Christianity is not an escapist religion, but one that conquers. One where the king comes back to his rebellious territories and says, actually, all of this is mine. You guys have made a hash of it all. This is all mine, and I'm taking it back. Let the word dwell richly in your mind, in your heart, in all knowledge and wisdom, and build your whole life, private, relational, and public, upon its foundation. Then, all of a sudden, the Bible is applicable to everything. Let let me make this clear. You're not making it applicable to everything. It already was. You're just coming to the realization that it is. And you go, Levi, that sounds all nice in in theory, but you didn't give me any any hard foundation. Well, shameless self-promotion here. October 14th and 15th, I will do just that. Right, at that worldview seminar. The whole lordship of Christ over everything. That this world is his eternal, comprehensive kingdom. Therefore, Paul says, do all, whether in word or deed, for the glory of God through Christ, in service and in, in anticipation of his kingdom. This is his blood-bought world. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word. We thank you that in it we find the words of life. That in it we find not only the call to personal growth and personal holiness, but the declaration that Christ reigns over all. And that he is reclaiming this world for himself. Lord, we ask that you would help us day by day to live out that truth. That we might see it clearly. And that it might enlarge our living, our thankfulness, in our worship of you. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.